Hi, everyone. Welcome back to this Vetfolio Voice episode, sponsored in part by Merck Animal Health, where we're happy to welcome the great Susan Little back to the podcast. In this episode titled, What's With All the Ticks?, we discuss the recent increase in tick populations, the latest data on tick-borne infections, including testing, monitoring, prevention, and client communication. Dr. Little is always a joy to talk to, but in case you haven't caught our previous episodes, let me tell you a little bit more about her. Dr. Susan Little is Regents Professor of Parasitology and the Kroll Ewing Professor in Veterinary Parasitology at Oklahoma State University, where she's active in veterinary parasitology teaching and oversees a research program that focuses on zoonotic parasites and tick-borne diseases. She earned her bachelor's degree from Cornell University, a DVM from Virginia Tech, a PhD in veterinary parasitology from the University of Georgia, and is board certified in veterinary parasitology through the American College of Veterinary Microbiology. She's co-director of the National Center for Veterinary Parasitology and past president of both the American Association of Veterinary Parasitologists and the Companion Animal Parasite Council. Dr. Little has authored more than 150 publications on veterinary and human parasites and tick-borne disease agents. She's also recognized as an outstanding teacher and has been awarded two Excellence in Teaching Awards from the National Student American Veterinary Medical Association, or SAVMA. She is always wonderful to talk to, and this time was no different. Let's go ahead and get into our talk. I'm back again with Dr. Susan Little, who we love having on the podcast. Dr. Little, thank you for joining me again. Oh, thanks so much for having me, Cassie. I always enjoy talking with you. Same, same here. And today we're talking about ticks and tick populations. So let's start with the basic. Um, And essentially, what's with all the ticks? I mean, I feel like ticks have always been there and they've always been a concern, but it seems like even more so now. Yeah, absolutely. There are more ticks than there used to be. That's not our collective imagination. There's just a whole lot of ticks out there. And so we've seen an increase in the tick population. So where there's always been ticks, there's more of the same species that we've dealt with. And then we've also seen geographic expansion. So more ticks, more places where they've expanded their range, moved into new habitats. And so people that didn't used to have to deal with ticks, tick control, tick-borne infections now do because ticks are in some places the new normal and in other places just more of the old normal. So we have to, as ticks have up to their game with increasing numbers, increasing populations, we have to up our tick control game and help protect the dogs and cats from those infestations. Are they just expanding because of, you know, travel and stuff like that or lack of effective preventions for a period of time there? Why are they showing up in new places and in greater numbers? Do we have that information? We do, but it's sort of a all of the above question. So if you remember those multiple choice questions from veterinary (laughs) school, all of the above was always closely considered. And with why tick populations are increasing and expanding, that's probably the right answer. So we do have introduction of new species for sure. We've got the longhorn tick, Haemophysalis longicornis, is now in 16 different states in the United States and counting. So that tick was only first recognized here in 2017. We now know it's been here since at least 2010, just going back through historic collections. And we now know, of course, it's in, you know, a third of the states. So So that's of concern. And that was most likely introduction on an infested dog, maybe an infested person that came back from an area of the world, Asia, Australia, New Zealand, where the ticks already established. So that can happen. But we also have habitat change. 
and reforestation or what's sometimes called afforestation, afforestation where the, the wooded areas expand and that creates more tick habitat. And many of us like that. I mean, it's really nice to live in the trees and in a natural area and be surrounded by woods. That's good for our mental health, but it's also good for tick health in that it creates more habitat for the wildlife host and for the tick populations themselves. And so that's happening. And then layered on that, of course, we have climate change. And so increasing temperatures and humidity, longer, warmer, more humid years is gonna lead to more days of tick activity time when the ticks can really thrive and find a host and be out there. So winters aren't as cold as they used to be. We get cold snaps, but on average, there's more warmer days, even through the winter months. And so that lets the ticks do better in nature and find more hosts. Oh, good. So, so glad that we can accommodate them. (laughs) (laughs) For sure. And it's not even, you know, they've moved They've moved northward, so we have more ticks in Canada now than we used to. Lyme disease is endemic in Canada, and that wasn't the case. So they've moved up in latitude, but they've also moved up in altitude. So we now have ticks at higher elevations than we used to. So that, and that's, again, thought largely due to climate change, habitat change, and then introduction of the ticks, and they're being allowed to thrive. But at the same time, the Lyme disease cycle has moved southward and eastward and westward. So it's truly an expansion. It's not just a one directional climate change only explanation, there's much more complexity to the cycle and a lot more going on to support the tick populations. Absolutely. And is this translating with fleas too? Are we seeing fleas increase as well? So we have seen pockets of incredibly intense flea pressure. And I'm sure you experienced that in Florida. We've seen that throughout the Southern US. So with that warm, humid climate, fleas do very well, but we have such great flea control now that it's really hard to tell or appreciate it as much because when someone has a just horrific flea explosion population in their home, they usually seek help and we're able to get that under control because we have such good strategies. With ticks, it's different because the ticks are, expect other than the brown dog tick, the ticks are wildlife ticks. So they're out there cycling in nature, in the woods, in grassy meadows, in fields, and then coming to us, coming to our pets from those natural cycles. So we can't give all the wildlife in North America their tick control, right? Unfortunately. There's not not a way to get on top of the tick populations. With fleas, because truly cats and dogs are the source of the fleas, you know, certainly there's peridomestic wildlife that can help support flea populations and free roaming cats that can help support flea populations. But for the most part, it's our pets. And so we can get on top of it just by treating everybody and making sure they're consistently treated throughout the year. Gotcha. That makes sense. That makes sense. And, you know, a good argument for tick control in our pets. Right. Yeah. And because the two are paired, um, flea and tick control together, it can really make a difference. Absolutely. And of course, with this increasing tick population, we're also seeing more tick-borne infections. So what kind of things should we be on the lookout for there? Oh, so many infections, right? <laughs> so we, we know about the ones that we're most familiar with. So Lyme disease, which we used to think of as Northeastern and Upper Midwestern US, it's still there, but it's really now mid-Atlantic states. And I don't think states like North Carolina or Kentucky or Tennessee think of themselves as Northeastern states. And yet Lyme disease is endemic throughout those areas. And so we've seen a real spread of areas that are at high risk of infections that we've long dealt with. So it's important to stay aware of that, make sure we're continuing to vaccinate, hopefully ahead of the introduction, ahead of the epidemic. Groups like the Companion Animal Parasite Council recommend Lyme disease vaccination 
in areas where disease is endemic or emerging, and those areas are expanding. And so we have to update vaccine protocols for that. And then, you know, all the other organisms, all the other tick-borne infections that we also deal with. So it's not just Lyme disease, it's anaplasmosis, ehrlichiosis, babesiosis, hepatozoonosis, Rocky Mountain spotted fever, all the other spotted fever group, rickettsia, and then new agents identified all the time. So it seems like about every six to 12 months, we get a new tick-borne infection described in the United States that's either affecting dogs, people, or both. Goodness gracious, that's a little scary. Yeah, it is. It can be overwhelming, but the the good news about it, or if there's any any sort of reassurance <laughs> to take from this explosion of understanding of tick-borne infections, is that what they all have in common, the weak link, is the tick. And so if we can really focus on tick awareness, consistent use of tick control, protecting dogs and cats, and then protecting people from ticks and tick bites and tick infestations, Lyme disease vaccination is critically important for dogs in many areas of the country, but it only protects against one infection. Whereas tick control, in addition to vaccination for Lyme disease, goes a long way to securing the health of our pets. Absolutely. That makes a lot of sense. So with all these tick-borne diseases that are out there, I know some of these can be really nonspecific. What should we be looking for in our patients? What should kind of raise that red flag for us? Right. And it is, it's a complex system because dogs are exposed and cats are exposed to so many different pathogens. They do have some symptoms in common. So of course, we always look for fever. Thrombocytopenia is classic for a lot of the rickettsial infections. Joint pain, so any difficulty moving. Renal disease should sort of trigger the tick-borne infection part of our brains. And so we're looking for those combination. And then where you are in the country, if it's spring, summer, then you might be thinking ehrlichia, rickettsial infections. Lyme disease, we can see throughout the year. That's more of a chronic infection, so it doesn't have as much of a seasonal presentation, even though the ticks themselves are seasonal. And then in terms of sorting out, and when we think tick-borne infection, what kind of testing should we do? Always a panel testing to get the greatest breadth of information that you can get, because again, dogs and cats in the world are exposed to a lot of different infections, so we want to make sure we're testing for a panel of potential infections. There's serologic assays that are available, which are really nice, because then you get evidence of antibodies to Borrelia, Anaplasma, Ehrlichia, Rickettsia, Babesia, you know, you can get a really wide swath of agents. And then if it's an acutely ill patient, one that has fever, thrombocytopenia, really seems sick, PCR assays are really useful because they target very specifically, again, a panel of PCR assays, but target very specifically, is there evidence of an active ongoing infection with Ehrlichia, Anaplasma, um, with Rickettsia in this patient? And that can make a big difference. And kind of expanding on the testing for these, I know one of the things that always throws me, because I'm in Florida and Lyme fortunately is not endemic here. Hopefully it stays that way, but you know, I'll do my testing and then I'll get a Lyme positive every now and again. And always my brain just goes, okay, what do I do now? I haven't, right. I don't see this very often. I know there's, you know, the C6, but how does that work and who do I call and all this stuff? So do you have you know, just a good recommendation for those of us that maybe aren't seeing these commonly, kind of some first line things we should think of. Sure. Yeah. So those important follow-up testing, when we see the, the Borrelia burgdorferi antibodies just on routine screening and routine screening is absolutely recommended. So kudos to everybody that's out there doing that. It makes a huge difference for the 
health of the of the dogs. But when we get that Lyme positive, the first thing I ask, because I'm in Oklahoma where we also don't have evidence of, of, of endemic transmission, the first thing I ask is, where did you all move here from? Or, you know, travel history, where might the dog have gotten infected? Just in case, because it could get here eventually. So we want to keep on top of that. And then in terms of follow-up testing, if we're worried about clinical disease, really reviewing the history, seeing if there's any evidence from the owner or from what you're seeing in the exam room of clinical disease, and then looking for proteinuria. So really wanting to probe a bit more into renal function, specifically proteinuria, because we're worried about Lyme nephritis. That's what's just catastrophic. That's just tragic for, for a dog. In terms of figuring out if it's an active ongoing infection that may warrant treatment or lead to disease later versus a resolved older infection, that Quant C6 that's offered through the IDEX Diagnostic Laboratory Network, I find very useful in a non-endemic area because you have your blue spot and then you can send in for the quantitative C6 and it will give you a number that says, okay, we've got a really good evidence. There's active infection, you know, maybe it's hundred or 200, or it might just be 15 or 20, anything less than 30 on that quant C6 suggests that it is a resolved infection that maybe just shows some residual antibodies. Key thing to remember in non-endemic areas, and I feel like our colleagues in, in Lyme country are laughing at us right now, but <laughs> key thing to remember is that vaccination does not trigger a positive on something like the, the IDEX 40X or on the serologic tests. Only active infection does, only past or current infection does natural infection, but vaccination is not 100% protective. So you can vaccinate a dog who's negative and then becomes positive on a Lyme test two years later. That's not triggered by the vaccination or the follow-up vaccines or anything. That just means a breakthrough infection has occurred. But with vaccination, clinical disease is very unlikely. So I know we're all getting familiar with vaccination oh, protecting yes. against clinical say disease, that sounds familiar. but not infection, but it's certainly true with, with Lyme disease as well. And that's really what we want to do is protect against clinical disease. And then vaccination with tick control has been shown clearly to reduce seroconversion. Then you don't even get infection, you know, very, very uncommon. You would see any infection at all if you do both vaccination and tick control. So it really speaks to the power of multiple prevention strategies. Yes, absolutely. Well, I appreciate you reviewing that for those of us that aren't in Lyme country. And just, it's a good reminder about, like you said, multiple preventative strategies and how important this is to really stay on top of it and keep communicating it to our clients. Right, right. And with screening testing, you know, when we're testing every year, as is recommended by both AHA and Companion Animal Parasite Council recommends screening dogs for vector-borne infections every year, we're going to turn up more positives. And so we need to have a strategy, kind of a flowchart in place that's appropriate for our practice area, for our clinic. What we do with those Lyme positives, what do we do with the Ehrlichia positives? We see a lot of Ehrlichia positive dogs that are clinically normal. The CBC, the platelet count comes back normal. There's no oh, yeah. history of all any problem at all. Yeah. And it's just a lot of dogs manage their infections okay. They still saw a tick at some point. If they're testing seropositive, they saw a tick. And so we need to have that conversation about tick control, why it's recommended, why it's so important. But we don't necessarily need to treat every seropositive dog, whether it's Ehrlichia, Anaplasma, Borrelia. We don't necessarily need to treat them with antibiotics, but we do need to look at them more closely and evaluate what their, what their needs may be. Absolutely. Absolutely. You mentioned new rickettsial diseases and new tick-borne diseases showing up. Are there any ones specifically that we need to be on the lookout for or be concerned about? 
There are a lot of new infections described that are transmitted by ticks. And so we do have to be aware. I mean, we want to know about the infections we've always been familiar with, but we have to be aware that there's some that don't quite follow the textbook because they're new, they're newly described. Probably most interestingly and worrying some is the new spotted fever group rickettsia that have been described in the last few years. And most recently, end of 2020, there was a great publication about dogs in the Middle South, that band of states from Oklahoma, Missouri, Arkansas, Tennessee, where Lone Star ticks are so intense, developing spotted fever group rickettsia not rickettsia rickettsii, but instead the group at NC State University that, that was able to research this pulled a new rickettsia species out by PCR and were able to characterize that very clearly. Very severe disease in these dogs. They required antibiotic treatment, supportive care. One dog in the case series died. So we're definitely worried about these novel rickettsia. And yet it wasn't, it wasn't Rocky Mountain spotted fever. It was something else. In human medicine, we're seeing a lot of information come out about viral tick-borne infections. And so there's interest in how that may affect canine health, but we don't have data on that yet. And then we have new Babesia described, new protozoal agents described in, in dogs. And so we worry about that as well. That was not what I was hoping to hear. I'll be honest. <laughs> that sounds a little scary. <laughs> yeah, I wish I had good news. It is a challenge for sure. We do have better tick control options now than we've ever had before. And so even though we do have increased threats of ticks and tick-borne infections, we have better strategies to protect the pets. So at least we have that to, to go on. Absolutely. Absolutely. And speaking of prevention and good news and stuff like that, we do have, like you said, vaccination against Lyme disease and that combined with tick control is very effective. But for many of these, there's not a vaccine and definitely not for the new ones that we're just now describing. So what can we do when vaccination's not available? Is it just, just tick control? So definitely stressing tick control and for owners that have not been receptive to that message before, maybe sharing some of those tragic stories through social media, through practice websites, you know, talking about that, the first cat of the year that you've lost to cytosone felis, even though, you know, we know that tick control can help prevent cytosone infection in cats. The dogs that we lose to rickettsia or lichia, borrelia, in a, you know, respectful way, in a kind way, but just we don't want this to happen to our patients, you know, ask us how we can help protect and then really stressing that tick control and then doing everything we can to make sure dogs are protected and cats are protected throughout the year using products that have longer efficacy, sending out text reminders with a, you know, click when you've done it kind of interactive feature, trying to help owners be successful in protecting their pets from ticks. And then the other thing as veterinarians we can do is just keep our awareness, our suspicion level up, knowing that tick-borne diseases are common. So even if that test is negative, if you think that dog has ehrlichiosis or rickettsiosis or anaplasmosis, then go ahead and treat you know, based on clinical suspicion, because sometimes if we're using a serologic test, it may just be that it hasn't, the dog hasn't seroconverted yet. So there's not antibodies there, but if you think it's a tick-borne infection and you have that experience and awareness, then treat and look for a response to treatment and use that as your, as your diagnostic test, your clinical test. Certainly sending off samples for PCR before starting antibiotics can help confirm your suspicion. But we know delaying treatment, especially with tick-borne infections, can lead to bad outcomes, right? We can actually lose patients that way. So we want to make sure we treat them as soon as possible. And we talked about this a little bit 
I don't know, way back, but with the concern for antibiotic stewardship, and generally we're talking about treating with doxycycline here, and that that's probably okay to go ahead and reach for doxycycline. But essentially that, you know, maybe it's okay to go ahead and reach for that doxycycline prophylactically in cases of suspicion. Yeah, whenever you have a sick patient that's febrile, maybe some joint pain, thrombocytopenia, just looks like a tick-borne infection, then certainly treating with doxycycline antibiotics is the way to go. The cautions with it is I would not recommend broad scale, widespread use of doxycycline in animals that are just seropositive, that don't have clinical signs because they likely don't need it, probably won't benefit from it, it may not be indicated. If you see some underlying thrombocytopenia, you know, you might have a stoic dog who doesn't appear to be ill, but you can find some evidence in the blood work that it would benefit from antibiotic treatment. So it's, it's both, right? It's not overusing the antibiotics and it's also not withholding the antibiotics because of concern of overuse. You want to just use them judiciously in, in the patients. And then with the rickettsial infections, dogs respond to doxycycline within just a day or two. That fever starts to resolve, the, the pain is lessened. And so if you don't see that response in the first couple of days of doxycycline treatment, revisit your diagnostic workup because you may have been right. It could very well be ehrlichiosis, but it might be something else also. So there could be a co-infection with a protozoal agent that'll require a different treatment, or it could be something else altogether. And so going back through that diagnostic workup is important if you don't see a response to treatment. Just like anything, using them judiciously and adjusting our plan as needed. Absolutely. Absolutely. So we've talked about all these scary expansions of tick-borne diseases and new tick-borne diseases and stuff like that. And knowing that all of that is out there, something that can be tough to deal with and, and honestly, like a little disheartening is when, you know, you go through and you talk to somebody and, and then they decline tick control altogether for their pet. So what do you think the reasons are behind owners declining tick control and how do we help that conversation so we see less people declining tick control and more dogs, dogs and cats protected? Yeah, it's tough. I mean, we know how important it is because we see what happens in the absence of tick control. The owners only have that maybe that one dog, so they don't know. They don't know what they're putting their dog at risk of developing. So just lack of awareness is, is the real problem. And owners, I think owners think they would see the fleas and ticks if it was a problem and then they'll just treat then, you know, not realizing that if they already see the fleas and ticks, it's too late. The infection has already occurred. The infestation has already occurred. And then a lot of owners just don't see the ticks at all, especially with you when you have a thick hair coat and maybe Lone Star ticks that tend to attach to the ventral surface. They attach to the abdomen, inguinal, axillary. That's not where the owners are interacting with their dogs necessarily or with their cats at all. And so they're just not going to know that there's ticks there. So the best motivator for purchasing tick control, we did a small survey of practices that were sending in ticks for identification to Oklahoma State. And we just asked them to go through their records and tell us if the dogs were on tick control or not when the ticks were collected. Almost all the dogs were not. Over 90% had no history of tick control use in the last year. So very little tick control in dogs coming into practices with ticks. But over 50% of the owners purchased tick control when the technician or the veterinarian pulled a tick off the dog. So taking the time to do that thorough ectoparasite exam and showing the tick to the owner can really make a difference in, in protecting against future ticks. We can't fix that one, but at least we can protect future ones. 
And then, you know, some owners just think their pets won't like it. They don't, we don't want to do things our dogs won't like, or our cats won't like. No one wants to annoy the cat by chasing it around with the pipette. You know, as soon as they hear the drawer open and you pull out the pipette or the tablet, the cats start to react. And so if we can do it less frequently by using a longer acting product, that can make a difference. If we can try and make it a special experience by giving a treat or a special toy, playing with the, with the dog or cat before or after and making it less of a chore, that can make a difference. But just trying to make it be more fun for the pet and the owner and less of a, a, a hurtful experience. And then the last thing is I think fiscal concerns do come into play. And I think some people for financial reasons have just trained themselves to say no to everything. I mean, I, I do that. I don't, I don't listen to a telemarketer if I make the mistake of answering my phone when one calls, right? I think we're all very good at saying no. No is just our first, our first response. So trying to get past that first no and maybe helping our, our clinic staff not hear no as no, but hear it as I need to learn more and maybe responding in a, in a kind, supportive way about what's in the best interest of the pets, because ultimately we're there to advocate for the pets. That's our, that's our role. So trying to advocate for protecting them, even though we've, we've heard no one, the first time, the second time, right. Continuing to bring that up. What about that response we get sometimes where the, you know, owners say, well, it's, it's a pesticide. I don't want to poison my dog. It's not natural. What kind of response would, would you have to something like that? Would you recommend that we talk to them about in that scenario? It's tricky, right? Because it's not natural. What's natural is for dogs and cats to be covered with fleas and ticks all the time. But that's not what we want. We, we live in this society today. We, we live in homes. And most of us <laughs> want to have our dogs and cats in the homes with us. Even if they're in our yard, we don't want them covered with fleas and ticks. And so to do that, we have to use strategies, certainly safe, effective strategies. I would never recommend something that I wouldn't use in my own pets that I didn't feel completely confident about. And so encouraging folks that it is safe and effective, but, you know, natural would be covered with fleas and ticks, scratching all the time, hair loss, dropping engorged ticks on the floor as they walk through the, you know, nobody wants engorged female ticks no. on their kitchen floor. So we've really been able to bring pets into our house because of effective parasite control, flea and tick control, intestinal parasite control. So we're not having worms vomited up. And we have to keep that going if we're going to maintain that close relationship. So I know there's a less flip more politic way to say that, that I'm sure um, <laughs> good technicians, good communicators, practice managers would have a way of communicating that to clients. But just talking about, you know, it's, we have to do this so that we can have that close relationship without having fleas and ticks come into the equation. And then we also know what happens if we don't do it. So there's really devastating consequences. Most of us have dealt with, even today, dealt with flea anemia, tick anemia, just overwhelming infestations leading to exsanguination of pets. And so in the absence of control in a natural setting, the lack of parasite control is really devastating. And if you haven't dealt with that in your practice area, if you're listening and you haven't seen something like that, if you do any sort of NGO work or mission work in resource limited areas, you'll see it because where there's not veter consistent veterinary care for dogs and cats, they, they truly do suffer. I was actually thinking along the same lines as you were, as you were talking, because I've definitely seen it in my area. And I remember one case specifically, if you would have told me this would happen, I don't, I think I would have said no way, 
but it was a German shepherd and not a tiny German shepherd. I mean, 60, 70 pound German shepherd came in and is sick, nonspecific had just been adopted by a new owner. And the new owner said, you know, something not right. And this poor dog was ghost white. And I think the PCV, it was low. It was like somewhere like 12, 15%. And sure enough, it was flea anemia in this huge German shepherd that required at least one, maybe two blood transfusions. And I was shocked that a dog that big could get that many fleas to, to become so anemic, but it, it absolutely happens. I mean, I've seen it firsthand. Yeah. And if you think about that thick hair coat, there's just a lot of habitat on that dog for fleas to thrive. <laughs> Prime real estate. <laughs> exactly. And then you can imagine what the environment where that dog lived, even if it was outside or in a porch or something like that, just covered with eggs and larvae and pupae. I mean, we've all seen the flea pyramid, right? What was happening on that dog is just the tip of everything that's going on in the environment. We had a case come into the teaching hospital here at Oklahoma State. It was a Great Pyrenees that was covered with brown dog ticks and had a PCV of eight, required two blood transfusions, no evidence of tick-borne infection. And they were able to recover it and you know, send it back home. But the resident, before he discharged the dog, asked the owners to provide evidence that they had had an exterminator come to their home because we knew we were seeing thousands of ticks on the dog. But you can imagine the tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands that were in that home environment. Oh, I don't want to think about that. Right. That's what happens. (laughs) Right. So when someone says, oh, I don't need tick control, you know, that's what I think about. Now, those catastrophic cases aren't the norm. That's not the day in, day out. But tick-borne infections, you know, you only need one tick to get through in order to get that tick-borne infection. And so we can certainly see other, a whole spectrum of problems that develop without it. Right. And, you know, you said there's probably a a more, you know, politic way of of saying this and communicating it, but I have to say my brain goes to the same place sometimes of, well, fleas and ticks are very natural. Exactly. Infections are too. Exactly. Maybe let's get away from that. Yeah. And I just, you know, I don't think anybody wants fleas and ticks in their home, right? So what we do by providing flea and tick control is protect the human animal bond. And it keeps that really close relationship that we so treasure between pets and the families they spend their lives with, because it lets, you know, an outdoor cat can be an indoor cat or an indoor cat can sleep in the bed with the owners. And you don't have to worry about fleas and ticks that would come between that relationship. So That idea of pets in the home, you know, that was almost unimaginable just a few generations ago. And now it's something we almost take for granted. Of course, the dog comes in the home. Of course, the dog sleeps in my bedroom. But we can't keep that going if we don't make sure there's no parasites there to to breach that, to breach that close relationship. Absolutely. And I think this has been such a great talk on just the importance of tick prevention and the changes in the tick populations and tick-borne diseases, what else can we be doing? I mean, we identify with the screening, but what resources can we use to learn more? You know, should we be sending in our ticks? What, what else should we be doing to help get on top of this? Yeah, that's a really good point. So getting those ticks identified when you find them is really useful. And it's, it can be a value-added service too. It lets the owner know, well, it lets the practice know what ticks are important in your area at different times of the year, what diseases they could be transmitting. So it gives you a lot of medically actionable information to identify the ticks when they're removed. But it also lets the owner know this is important. Like this is a 
this isn't just a, oh, here's another tick. Let's just toss it in the, in the tick jar or even just throw it, throw it in the trash. Instead, it's a, this is a medical event. We're going to send this off and get it identified. We're going to find out what diseases it could have transmitted. And then here's what we recommend. So this doesn't happen again. So it, it makes it clear to the owner that this, this matters, this tick on the, on the dog or cat matters. To get them identified, there are free services available. You can send it to, at Oklahoma State University, we identify ticks from veterinary practices in all 50 states. The website is showusyourticks.org. You have to type very carefully. We did have the vet students, <laughs> the vet students got to name it. And I think it's very clever because you can remember it, but you just have to make sure you go to the right website. So showusyourticks.org. There's a submission form and any practice can send in ticks. We send an email back within 24 hours with the species, the stage, and what it may have transmitted. We don't PCR the ticks for pathogens as they're received because we don't have funding for that, but they do go in the freezer and they're used in later research. And then we upload the papers that describe the infection in the ticks to that same website later. And there's no fee for that. You can send them in for free identification. Many states are also running tick identification services. So if you know of one at your local, you know, your, your state university or your state public health department, that's great. But we accept ticks from all over. So there's no, no limitation on where they, where they come from. And the reason so many states are interested in identifying ticks from pets is because of introduction of this longhorn tick, Haemophysalis longicornis, and really wanting to understand where it's spreading. In addition to worrying about you know, Lyme disease transmitted by Ixodes and Ehrlichia and Rickettsia transmitted by Amblyoma and Dermacenter. So that's another, you could use a local resource too, but I would definitely encourage get ticks identified. And then when they're identified, you can post to social media pages. You can put a, even just a sign up a, a whiteboard in the front office that says first tick of the year, right? If you're pulling ticks off dogs and cats in January or February, let owners know that because they may not be aware that the tick risk has already started and it's time, you know, you've got to have tick control on board during those unusual times of the year. The other way to get more information about ticks is through, I'll recommend a couple good websites. And I think you all link to these too in the podcast files. I think so, so. They can be found on the Vetfolio site. But the Companion Animal Parasite Council, I always recommend that. That's targeted to veterinarians and veterinary technicians and provides great information about ticks and tick-borne infections. Even has maps where you can look up what, how many dogs are testing positive for different tick-borne infections in your practice area. So that's a great resource. And then there's a companion site, petsandparasites.org, that's targeted to pet owners. So if you have that pet owner that wants to know more, you can answer their questions and then also send them to the Pets and Parasites site and have the confidence of knowing that that's a Companion Animal Parasite Council sibling site so they can give you more information. And then tickencounter.org is a site from the University of Rhode Island. And that's another really useful resource that has information about ticks all over the United States. Awesome. So lots of resources out there to figure out what's going on with these guys and then learn more about them. Yeah, for sure. For sure. And we don't, I feel like I kind of gave fleas the short shrift there. We don't focus <laughs> as much on flea identification because they're all cat fleas all the country over, over 90, 95% of the fleas are going to be cat fleas. So, and again, we know how to control them if we can just get to the pets and keep them on control products. Absolutely. Well, Dr. Little, it's always so much fun to have you on the podcast and you're always full of useful information. Any final thoughts you want to share with us? Thanks so much, Dr. Cassie. I always enjoy being on the podcast and talking with you about ticks and fleas. And 
not so much final thoughts in terms of advice, but just an incredible appreciation for everything that veterinarians and veterinary technicians are doing to protect dogs and cats from ticks and to understand tick-borne infections. We really are a, a one medicine, one health profession, and everything we're doing has helped so much the health of pets, the families they live with, but it's also really helped public health and just awareness. It's often veterinarians that know when Lyme disease spreads to a new area because we're testing dogs. So we find those antibodies before human medicine in the same area has even has even found out. And we're very aware of the tick problems, the tick pressure because of of our need to care for our patients. So I'm just grateful to be part of such an amazing profession. I agree. I agree. Keep up the good work, everybody. All right, everyone, I hope you enjoyed that episode and learned as much as I did about the latest in ticks and tick-borne diseases. A huge thank you to Dr. Little for joining us. Thank you to Merck for sponsoring this event. And thanks to all of you for joining us. If you'd like to find out more about this and other exciting podcasts, click on the education tab on the Vetfolio website. As always, we'd love to hear your input on this session, as well as ideas for topics you'd like to hear from us in the future feel free to reach out to me at dvm at vetfolio.com. You can also visit my Facebook page at Dr. Cassie DVM, and you can find me on LinkedIn. And remember, if one animal is better off because of you today, it's a great day.